You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Just in front of where I was, the land was open, and as they were mostly dressed in butternut-colored clothes, they had the appearance of a plowed field being crossed in mass formation until they got within good fighting distance to our line, when they broke into line of battle formation three lines deep. Our line being only a skirmish line, that means five paces between the men, we were obliged to fall back or be either killed or taken prisoner. The enemy force in our front was at least 90 men to our one. Still, they noticed that there was some opposition to their charge, for we were armed with breech loaders, and as we took the matter very coolly, many a brave southern threw up his arms and fell. But on they came, shouting and yelling their peculiar yell. Sergeant Wyman White 2nd U.S. Sharpshooters, Bernie's Division, 3rd Corps. Lieutenant Joe Smith, son of Captain Jack Smith, was killed. We had just climbed a stone fence and crossed a branch of a little marsh. Lieutenant Smith had wet his handkerchief in the branch and tied it around his head. It was extremely hot. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon, and we had double-quicked across an open field for nearly 500 yards. He was killed in 20 feet of me, just after we crossed the branch, shot through the head, the bullet passing through the folds of his handkerchief on both sides. He was a splendid officer, and we miss him very much. Private John C. West, 4th Texas, Robertson's Brigade, Hood's Division, Longstreet's Corps. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 348 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, at the end of the last episode, the big Confederate attack on the southern end of the Union line was just beginning on the afternoon of Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. On the federal side, George Meade and Dan Sickles had just concluded their hasty conference near the Peach Orchard, with Sickles asking if he should pull his men back to their original position, and a very angry Meade famously responding, I wish to God you could, but the enemy won't let you. 
With the artillery of both sides now at a fever pitch, it was much too late for Sickles to pull back, so Meade told him to hold on as best he could. George Sykes' Fifth Corps was on its way, and Winfield Hancock would be called on to send support from his Second Corps. For Meade, much of the day had passed quietly, but now, having discovered Sickles' blunder, and with the Confederates across the way poised to launch their attack, he was forced to make the best out of what was a truly bad situation. As George Meade galloped away to hurry along support, Dan Sickles and his men braced for the Confederate tide, just then sweeping forward from Seminary Ridge. As y'all recall, the revised Confederate attack plan called for John Bell Hood's division to now kick off the assault. Forming his division to the right of McClaw's, Hood, like McClaw's, had deployed with two brigades in front and two behind in support. Evander Law's exhausted and thoroughly parched Alabamans formed the right of Hood's front line, while Jerome Robertson's Texas and Arkansas regiments formed to the left of Law, their line stretching northerly toward McClaw's right flank. Henry Rock Benning lined up his Georgians roughly 200 yards behind Law, while another all-Georgia outfit, led by George Tyke Anderson, went into position to the left of Benning, behind Robertson. Before his men stepped out to the attack, Hood had urged Longstreet several times to allow him to swing his division farther south. Hood's scouts had discovered that Big Round Top was unoccupied and that it would be possible to march around it and get into the Union rear. But when Hood appealed repeatedly to Longstreet to try it, Old Pete would not, could not, be swayed. The prospects of such a maneuver may have been appealing, but too many unknowns attended the scheme. And besides, adopting it would require yet another change in plans, and would consume even more time, and it was already far too late in the day. The sun was already halfway down the western sky. Longstreet made it clear that Hood was to attack the enemy in front of him. Resigned to carry out the orders he had been given, although he formally protested them, the first and only time he would ever do such a thing in his military career, Hood galloped to the front of his lines. Reining up in front of his old command, the Texas Brigade, he pointed toward Little Round Top and yelled out, Forward, my brave Texans, forward and take those heights. It was already well after 4 p.m., probably closer to 4.30, as the Confederate and Texas flags at the center of each regiment's line sloped forward and the men stepped out, and the first Texas's, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Work, shouted, Follow the Lone Star flag to the top of the mountain! On the Texans' right, Law's Alabama Brigade strode forward through a field of standing wheat amid a chorus of rebel yells, their weariness forgotten in a surge of adrenaline as they raised, quote, that wild, indescribable battle yell that no one having heard ever forgot. Laws and Robertson's men moved out first, while behind them came the soldiers of Hood's rear brigades under Benning and Tyg Anderson. 
Confederate artillerists held their fire as the rebel infantry passed through their gun line, but the Federal artillery didn't extend the same courtesy. In fact, the fire from the Union cannon only seemed to increase in its ferocity. One of Benning's Georgians later wrote, quote, As soon as we came in sight, a furious blast of cannon broke from the tops of the hills and mountains around, and the terrific cry and screams of shells began. But the men moved forward, quote, undismayed by the terrors that seemed to awake from the infernal regions. Shells crashed among the rebel ranks, and Hood's men dropped by the dozen. Among the first struck down was Hood himself. He had made it only a short distance forward before a shell fragment tore into his left arm, rendering it useless for the rest of his life. Helped from the saddle, he was then carried to the rear for treatment. The uneven terrain, broken further by numerous stone fences and the marshy bottomlands of Plum Run, all conspired to disrupt Hood's formations, as did the steady musket fire poured into the rebel ranks by Federal skirmishers strung out across their front, and cannon fire from Captain James Smith's New York artillerists positioned atop Devil's Den. Yet, in the face of this persistent fire, Laws and Robertson's Confederates continued to push forward, steadily driving the Federal skirmishers back. But then a steady volley erupted from the Yankees atop Houck's Ridge as the rebels collided with the main Union line. The soldiers of the 3rd Arkansas and 1st Texas, on the left of Robertson's brigade, were the first to be struck by this withering blast of musketry. Advancing into Rose's Woods, the Arkansans came under so destructive a fire from Hobart Ward's 3rd Corps soldiers positioned atop the ridge that their advance ground to an abrupt halt. The Arkansas men also came under a flanking fire from the Yankees of the 17th Maine of De Trobriand's brigade lined up along a stone fence that separated the Rose Woodlot from the wheat field. At the same time, but to the right of the 3rd Arkansas, the 1st Texas also came under heavy fire as it advanced both through the trees and to the base of an open, irregularly shaped triangular field that led up to the crest of Devil's Den. The Texans advanced with, quote, a fierce charging yell, end quote, but their attack was stymied by a destructive fire poured forth by the 124th New York, holding firmly atop Devil's Den. Smith's four guns to the left of the 124th continued to bang away, their ammunition rapidly dwindling. When he learned that his gunners had expended all their case shot, Smith bellowed, Give them shell! Give them solid shot! Damn them! Give them anything! Several times the Confederates regrouped and tried to push forward, but each time their advances stalled out. The two sides settled into a savage firefight that took a heavy toll on both of them. For example, the 20th Indiana lost 156 of its 268 men, while the 3rd Arkansas lost a staggering 182 men killed or wounded. For the moment, Ward's Federals were holding their own, but for the rebel soldiers whose advance was stalled out in the trees and along the base of Devil's Den, help was on the way. 
Approaching Devil's Den from the south came the 44th and 48th Alabama from Law's Brigade. When the Confederate attack kicked off, these two regiments were on the far right of Law's line. But as his brigade drew nearer to the western slopes of Big Round Top, Law halted them and then turned them left in order to deal with Smith's Federal cannon blasting away from atop Devil's Den. The 44th and 48th Alabama changed front, marching in a northerly direction and passing behind the other three regiments of Law's brigade, so that now they approached Devil's Den from the south. It was a tough go for these Alabamans as the huge boulders in the Plum Run Gorge, which separated Devil's Den from Big Round Top, slowed and disrupted their advance, as did the Yankees of the 4th Maine, who were well positioned among the large granite slabs on the far left of Ward's line, and who now greeted Law's approaching men with a shower of bullets. The Federal fire slowed the approach of the 44th and 48th Alabama, but the rebels were determined, and they were able to eventually work their way around the left flank of the 4th Maine, forcing the Yankees to fall back grudgingly. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As the 44th and 48th Alabama pushed forward and attacked Devil's Den from the south, the men of the 1st Texas continued their efforts up the western slopes, pushing up that open triangular field, all the while blazing away at the 124th New York, holding on to the crest. The commander of the 124th New York, Colonel Augustus Van Horn Ellis, watched as his men slugged it out with the determined Texans. With the rebels showing no signs of giving up the fight, Ellis ordered a bayonet charge. At his command, the Empire State men rushed down the hillside and very quickly drove the Texans back, all the way to the western base of Houck's Ridge. But though the Texans may have been driven back, behind them emerged another Confederate line. 
Henry Benning's Georgia Brigade had arrived on the scene. Advancing on the right of Hood's second line, Benning was supposed to follow directly behind Law, but Law's Alabamans had veered too far to the right, and Benning lost sight of them. And so his advance brought his Georgians up behind Robertson's fragmented line as they attacked Ward's Federals at Devil's Den. Approaching Devil's Den just as the 124th New York charged down the hillside to their front, Benning's Georgians delivered a severe fire into the Yankees. One officer in the 124th recalled that the first devastating rebel volley brought down a quarter of the regiment's men. Among the killed was Colonel Ellis, who fell dead from the saddle when a bullet pierced his brain. What was left of the 124th New York scrambled back up the hillside, resuming their place on the crest while Benning's Georgians surged forward, joined in their advance by the 1st Texas on their left and the 44th and 48th Alabama on the right. Together, these rebels advanced up the slopes through the rocks and toward the crest of Devil's Den, bearing down on Captain Smith's now very much exposed and vulnerable battery. One of Smith's guns, disabled by a Confederate shell, had already been taken out of the fight. With rebel infantry now approaching from his front and left, and not wishing to lose his three remaining pieces, Smith raced over to the shaken remnants of the 124th New York, begging them, For God's sake, men, don't let them take my guns away from me. But there was little the Union infantry could do, and there would be no time for Smith to call for his battery's horses. Despairing of any help, Smith realized that his cannon would have to be abandoned. He ordered his men to make their way to safety and take all of their firing implements with them, their sponge rammers, friction primers, and whatnot. Left behind, Smith's guns there atop Devil's Den soon fell into enemy hands. Ward's line was crumbling. On his left, Colonel Elijah Walker of the 4th Maine, his men still under a heavy fire, attempted to regain the ground lost at Devil's Den. He led his men up and around the massive boulders, where they were greeted by the Confederates with a few well-directed volleys. The 99th Pennsylvania came racing to their support, and together these two regiments held out for a few violent minutes. But it was all in vain, because there were simply too many Confederates closing in on them, and from nearly three sides. By this time, Tyga Anderson's Georgia Brigade had arrived in Rose's Woods to the left of Benning and the men of the 1st Texas, adding weight to the attacks against Ward's Federals on Hawks Ridge, while Law's Alabamans and Benning's Georgians closed in on Ward's men from their front and flank. Having already suffered heavy casualties and feeling that he was about to be overwhelmed, Ward ordered his men to fall back. Ward, a grizzled veteran officer who had joined the army when he was 18 and fought in the Mexican War, lost fully a third of the men of his brigade, and after what one Texan described as, quote, one of the wildest, fiercest struggles of the war, end quote, the Confederates gained possession of Devil's Den. But even as the combat was ending there, it continued to rage with great intensity farther east up the rocky, tree-covered slopes of Little Round Top. 
When he first learned of Sickles' unauthorized advance of the Third Corps to a new line, George Meade immediately responded by ordering Sykes to move his V Corps south. Meade also sent his chief engineer, Governor K. Warren, to Little Round Top, telling him that if, quote, anything serious is going on, then Warren was to, quote, attend to it. A West Point graduate, Warren was 33 years old and was recently married, having exchanged vows with his bride just two weeks earlier. Choosing duty over a honeymoon, Warren returned to the Army of the Potomac as it made its way north in pursuit of the Confederates. On July 1st, the first day of the battle, he had assisted Howard and Hancock in establishing a defensive line on Cemetery Hill, but it would be the afternoon of July 2nd that would become his shining moment. His actions on that day would earn him the title of Savior of Little Round Top. A vast and dramatic panorama spread out before Warren when he reached the hilltop's rocky summit. Longstreet's attack hadn't yet started, but Warren watched as the artillery of both sides thundered away. Below him, and some 500 yards to his left front, he could see Ward's troops and Captain Smith's gunners at Devil's Den, while to his far right front, much farther distant, he could see the apex of Sickles' salient at the Peach Orchard, an area that was also alive with artillery fire. However, of greatest concern to Warren was the Confederate infantry stacked up deep in the far distant trees along Seminary Ridge. The Union signalmen stationed there on Little Round Top had alerted Warren to the presence of those enemy troops, and it only took him a moment to realize with startling certainty that the Confederates' right flank extended well beyond Sickles' left. Most alarming of all was the fact that, aside from the handful of flag-waving signalmen, Little Round Top, which Warren believed to be, quote, the key to the whole position, end quote, was entirely unoccupied. If the Confederates gained possession of this hilltop, Warren believed that it would spell doom for the entire Federal position at Gettysburg, making their line along Cemetery Ridge untenable. To Warren, it was readily apparent that Little Round Top needed to be secured, and quickly. Warren immediately sent out calls to both Meade and Sickles for help. One of his staff officers, Lieutenant Ranald McKenzie, reined up at 3rd Corps headquarters near the Trossel House, seeking soldiers to secure the vacant hilltop. But Sickles had no troops to spare. His line was already paper-thin in spots, and Longstreet's rebel infantry were just then beginning their attack. Sickles told McKenzie that the 5th Corps was on its way and that he should seek out Sykes for help. McKenzie soon located George Sykes, who in turn directed him to call on 61-year-old James Barnes, whose division marched at the head of the approaching 5th Corps column. Barnes would later claim that he responded to Warren's call for help by ordering his lead brigade, under Colonel Strong Vincent, to Little Round Top. A much more widely accepted version of the event, though, has Vincent himself taking the responsibility of leading his men there. Right. Noticing a 5th Corps staff officer gallop by, Vincent, so it would seem, called out, What are your orders? The staffer told him that he was sent to find General Barnes. Did Vincent know where he was? 
Not answering, Vincent again asked as to the man's orders. General Sykes told me to direct, to direct General Barnes to send one of his brigades to occupy that hill yonder, he said, pointing to Little Round Top. Vincent answered, I will take the responsibility of taking my brigade there. And with that, Strong Vincent and his four regiments set off for Little Round Top and a date with destiny. But no matter how it happened, whether it was by Barnes' direction or by Vincent's initiative, some 1,300 men from Pennsylvania, Maine, Michigan, and New York were soon making their way up the hillside. And they would arrive on Little Round Top none too soon, because just a few minutes after they took up their positions across the southern face of the hilltop, advancing Confederate soldiers emerged from the trees below. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Devil's Den, A History and Guide by Gary E. Edelman and Timothy H. Smith. There are several stories about how Devil's Den supposedly got its name, including one revolving around an exceptionally large black snake that lived there among the rocks. And I'd always kind of poo-pooed that particular legend until our last visit to Gettysburg. And when we were at Devil's Den, what did we almost literally stumble across? A very big black snake. A very big black snake. So, there you go. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed, Facebook page, and a link to our Tee Public storefront if you'd like to purchase a podcast t-shirt or two. Over on the members' feed at Patreon, we're in the midst of a two-parter about Burden's sharpshooters at Gettysburg. And speaking of the Strawfoot Brigade, our thanks go out to the most recent recruits who have signed up to support the podcast, Shane W., John B., Andrew S., and Craig W. And thanks to Diana joseph randall and david for their recent donations those are always much appreciated and then as the curtain comes down on this show we'll remind you that the music you hear at the start and end of every episode of the podcast is from the song midnight on the water and we use it with the kind permission of spiritwood music thanks for listening to this episode of the civil war 1861 to 1865 a history podcast Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we look at the battle for Little Round Top. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.